Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is the 20th of the 5th. It is another glorious day because you're alive to hear this podcast. And any day you're not alive to do that is simply not a glorious day, either because there's no podcast or you're dead. Kind of a coin flip there, and which is worse. Well, yeah, I think you, you've nailed that one, Gary. That's a bit of an iron box, logically. Anyway. Speaking of death, Michael, as it came up, today is a fantastic day. A day in which we can announce that moving forward, millions of lives will be saved, Michael. It's a cornucopia of life-saving choices. Yeah, it's, uh, I think we all are breathing a sigh of relief and cheering a small cheer for the European court that has gone out, Gary, and gone after big menthol. You're right. I mean, we're all certainly going to be breathing easier now that there's uh, a lot less smoke in the atmosphere. Or, well, probably about the same amount of smoke. It's just none of it will be menthol-flavoured. Well, no, you see, unfortunately, Gary, and I'm sure the court is aware of this, but at the end of the day, the court's job isn't to go around dealing with reality or people's lives or the rights of sovereign nations to make decisions uh, for their people based on the democratically elected governments of those countries. Let's, you know, let's be realistic. That's not the job of the court. It's the job of the court is to espouse a vision, a utopia, a higher state. Because what the dear listener may not be aware is that the European Court of Justice, how or why this court, this case is in the European Court of Justice, has been explained to me. I still remain confused and baffled, but there you go. I have explained it. That is still, I suppose it's my default, confused and baffled is my default position in life. They have banned menthol cigarettes. Now, Romania and Poland, Poland is the largest consumer of menthol cigarettes apparently in Europe. Poland said, uh, please don't do this. And they gave all sorts of reasons like it was a tradition in Poland. Rather than just saying, uh, well, we're Poland and we got elected by the people in here. And we don't want to do this, so fuck off. So what's going to happen, Gary? Poland, I suspect, still has borders with countries like the Soviet Union uh, or possibly Ukraine, I don't know, Belarus. Where there there may be people willing, Gary, willing to supply menthol cigarettes to the people of Poland. I I would think it is important to point out here that the European Court of Justice ruling came four years ago. It's just the ban is coming in. Uh, I believe came in yesterday or possibly today. Mm-hmm. There's been a little bit of confusion on that, but it is now illegal to buy menthol cigarettes in this country. So if you were someone who smoked menthol and you weren't aware of this, I hope I've made your day a little bit better. You've also missed the opportunity to stock up. Back in the day, there used to be a thing called consulates, which were menthol. And then there were more, which were like long little cigarillo things, which you could get them on. But the number of people that smoked menthol was was very, very small indeed. I I still don't understand what the hell business it is of the European court. On the basis, they decided on the basis that menthol made the cigarettes more pleasant. And therefore, they couldn't do it. uh, What was it? By ensuring that tobacco products look and taste like tobacco products. The new rules will help to reduce the number of people who start smoking in the EU. But all I can imagine when so, they say whoa, that whoa, is... Whoa, 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 could you, In the words of the young people, could you provide a link for that, please? Where's That is the European Health Commissioner, Tonio Borg. Yeah, that's fine. That's his opinion. I want the... Where's the evidence 
that this is going to stop people starting smoking. Also, if menthol was actually this thing which made cigarette smoking so much better and so much nicer and made more people likely to begin smoking cigarettes. I, by the way, at the time when I smoked and people were taking still large numbers of young people were taking up smoking, I don't remember anybody if starting with menthol. Why, if it was such a good thing, why why didn't menthol dominate the market rather than being a tiny sliver of the market, which it always well, it was? Does, it does actually dominate certain markets, is my understanding. Yeah, but that, that, that may be a local thing. Oh, it is. It's, it's one know. of the problems in America. Anytime someone brings up banning menthol cigarettes, someone points out that the primary consumer of menthol cigarettes are black people. And then there's a sort of, you could do it, but you might be a racist. <laughs> now, I did. Did you see Minister Simon Harris come out and talk about this? And one thing I've really loved about, because I like I don't smoke, I don't. But if you want to smoke, smoke away. I don't care. Like, smoke them up, Johnny. But uh, <laughs> I've noticed that the people who've been talking about why menthol has to be banned are really bigging up how great menthol is. Yeah. Like even Simon Harris, he says, well, the pleasant taste of menthol masks the true taste of tobacco, which is like an old timey tobacco ad going <laughs> smooth and pleasant. I am left to wonder here what this means for other products. Ignoring the fact that for many people, it was precisely the menthol that, that they didn't like and they weren't getting their smooth oh tobacco is a treated product i mean it's not like we are people are walking walking around ireland gary with with tobacco leaves what what they have plucked from the field rolling them up burning them inhaling i mean they're dried they're rubbed they are treated with products they are then chopped up they're put into cigarettes it's passed through a filter which alters the taste and the experience of the thing this is pipe tobacco Lots of pipe tobacco is treated with things like with, with alcohol, with rum, with whiskey, molasses, things. Snuff. Is snuff still legal? Do people still use stuff? Snuff, snuff is classed as, um, as a traditional or heritage product, I think, under some of the tobacco regulations. So it's still available. If you take snuff, it is not cocaine. Don't try and use it as such. It will not go well. Uh, no. That's just a uh, little tip but to I, make your life better I do, if you find yourself doing snuff. I do think that, I think also stuff comes in flavour. But tobacco, I, I don't, either you bite the bullet with tobacco and just say, okay, we, we've we decided bad, bad thing. And we're going to make it illegal rather than, and just make, create a proper illegal market for the mafia to make more money in. Rather than little small markets. What about alcohol? Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. So here's from the actual... This is a, a press release from the Court of Justice of the European Union. Now, again, this ruling came down in 2016. But it's still concerning because they, they talk about tobacco and they say, uh, menthol, by its pleasant favour, makes tobacco products more attractive to consumers and that reducing the attractiveness of those products may contribute to reducing the prevalence of tobacco use and dependence among you and continuing users. That is part of why the court confirmed the validity of the provision, which is to say that the European Court of Justice has said that it is perfectly fine for the EU to decide that there is a common good to be uh, achieved by reducing the consumption of a product, and that if they make that decision, it is perfectly legal for them to say that product must be made worse. So alcohol, sugar, fast food, 
anything perceived as unhealthy, it would seem would now you you would now be able to if you wanted say well that is too delicious make it less delicious no. make it as bad as it can be now you might think that it's a long stretch from there from, from there to alcohol but remember if you take the position of say alcohol ireland uh, which is the state funded official voice of the anti drink lobby in ireland they say on their front page there is no safe level of consumption of alcohol. Reflect on that. There is no safe level of the consumption of alcohol. That means, so a glass of wine a day, represent, that is not safe. So alcohol is intrinsically, at any level of consumption, a dangerous product. It's bad for you from their perspective. And this is increasingly the, the opinion of people like them who are funded by your tax dollars to lobby against you being allowed to do the things that you want to do. And that's not just in Ireland, that's all over the Western world. I suspect that when you look at the vast numbers of jobs and the vast amount of money made by people in the alcohol industry, and not just in the in the sort of the lower class vulgar business of making things like beer, but Burgundy and Bordeaux and the great Rieslings of the Moselle Valley and the Barolos and the Barbarescos around the Lange and Piemonte, that nobody's going to get very far. But I can see them going after, uh, shall we say, creating a section of, of, of alcohol, as they have done in this country, where those al- that, that, that alcohol, which is at, within the reach of the poorest people, should be made more unpleasant because it's not a traditional product or because it's not a niche product or because it doesn't fit into the categories of a classic or a high-quality food, beverage or whatever the nonsense that they will invent for it. You said yourself, like fast food, sugar, sugar. They don't like sugar and anything has sugar in it. So why not say Coca-Cola from now on isn't allowed to use sugar but has to use aspartamin or some other sweetener? Because the sugar is an intrinsic part of making Coca-Cola a more attractive product, which it is. So, I mean, this is happening. It's, it's, I mean, the ruling is years old. It's just a case of what it comes down the line on next. Uh, now, th- I will link the, um, the actual release uh, in the podcast notes. But uh... there's a principle in your... There's a- there's a principle in European law. There's a principle in Euro- European organisation, jurisprudence, whatever you want to call it, which is goes back to the very to the foundation of all of these various organisations: European Court of Human Rights, European Court of Justice, the European Coal and Steel Federation, the European Union, and that principle was based on the Catholic uh, notion of Catholic moral philosophy, was which was subsidiarity, and subsidiarity is the principle that every decision, political decision, should be taken as close as possible to the community which was it to which which was being affected. And only those own abs- which those decisions which absolutely had to be made at the highest level for specific important reasons of coordination that otherwise wouldn't work, only those limited decisions should be made at the very top. So it was an advocate of radical local democracy. Now, it seems to me, if nothing else, this kind, and Gary, frankly, I mean, I, like I could give a 
about mental fags, they don't care. But the principle behind it, the notion that Poland can be simply ignored on a decision like this, when there is no reasonable argument to say that this is a decision which had to be made at a European level, is absolutely offensive to subsidiarity. I mean, my I, I take your point on that, and I think it's a good one. But my main concern is the court's language and this idea that uh, anything, if, if we decide that something shouldn't be done and that it is a harm for it to be done, it's perfectly fine for the EU to simply decide that we'll just make it shit. Absolutely. And particularly when we know, Gary, that there's a very good chance that they will base their decisions on what they consider to be good or to be bad. Not on a reasonable and balanced understanding of the evidence, but rather whatever way the wind is blowing socially or culturally on the day they make that decision. I, I did quite like, I don't know if you saw Simon Harris speak about this, but saying the pleasant taste of menthol masks, the two tastes of tobacco, but he, he, uh, you know, he aligned it beautifully to get it into the news. He said the COVID-19 pandemic has made it more important than ever to quit. I thought the science was saying that smokers were actually benefiting. Well, there were a couple of pieces of research that said that smokers were benefiting. The World Health Organization had put out a review that said that uh, smokers were more likely to de- develop severe diseases, diseases with COVID-19 compared to non-smokers. Now, listen, I think the science on smoking is, is in. Smoke, yes, we, smoking, smoking is bad. Smoking is bad for you. Smoking is very bad for you. But that isn't to say that there may not be possible odd, quirky things. For example, uh, smoking is... Um, well, smoking... Nicotine probably is actually cure is is a, is a is a positive for the development of ulcerative colitis. That if you smoke, your people who smoke are far less likely to develop ulcerative colitis, and people who who have smoked and then give up very often, if they're if they're that tendency, genetic tendency will develop it. I think there's some evidence that smoking may be beneficial for in forms of dementia, in again tobacco. Uh, not tobacco, but nicotine. But on the other hand, smoking is really bad for your vascular system. Apparently, there was also a lot less head lice when everyone smoked. <laughs> but, yeah, smoking, very bad for you. You shouldn't yeah. smoke. Stop smoking. Yeah, so there was there was a French study, I think, that said um, smokers were less likely to contract uh, COVID-19, mm-hmm. which drove the World Health Organization into... Some sort of nearly feral panic. <laughs> what did you think was going to happen? Suddenly people are going to start smoking on it. Mean, Jesus. Anyway. Uh... I just, I love the fact that like, tobacco is one of the largest preventable causes of death in the world. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, well, COVID-19 means you should stop smoking. You should stop smoking anyway if you're concerned about health. If you're not concerned about your health, keep smoking. Yeah, it's, but if you are like, there's you there are just so many good reasons not to smoke. There are just there are stacks and stacks of them. And yes, Gary, I mean we you know, we're talking about the, the court. I can perfectly well imagine legislation coming down the road, which would be happily accepted by the courts regarding. And and we won't get into it now because it's a subject we've talked about before, and we will probably go back to it. But the subject of vaping, where there has been a consistently anti-science, anti-evidence-based approach across a number of EU institutions and national governments. And they have established 
really, as like an obituary, certain things to be the case, ignoring the the best current evidence. Actually, I think smoking still is the number one preventable cause of death. I thought obesity had overtaken it, but it probably hasn't. Though obesity is a is a growth market. Obesity growth market. No, of course. The uh, the there 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 may be an argument about obesity that once you start having populations that live past fifty five, the extent to which you can say that how much of the obesity is actually preventable and is much isn't is, uh, how much is isn't is a, is an is an interesting and fun topic for another day. I am um, so moving on to that. I wanted to well, I suppose we're talking about the WHO anyway. Oh God, yes. Donald, is it? Donald Trump put out a letter um, directly to Tedros, uh, Dr. Tedros, mm-hmm. the head of the WHO. Former member of the DERG, uh, murderer, the murderous uh, genocidal re- Marxist regime in Ethiopia. Is it the same person, Just Yes, he's yeah, also the person who was accused of covering up uh, three cholera outbreaks when he was Minister of Health of Ethiopia. Right, cool. Of course, that was never proven. That's merely an accusation, and we wouldn't want anyone to think and less of the man as we detail the many and various accusations of his past. Like those wicked people who say that he was he got the job uh, because of the support of China with the help of uh, Zimbabwe, and, and then, of course, appointed Robert Mugabe as an international health ambassador. I, I was writing, actually, I, when I, I was writing an article for Gript on this, and at the end of it, I was writing a paragraph of the scandals that the Who has been involved in, saying it's been a hard time for the Who recently because, and then just, and I just had to cut it down massively because I got to the end of it and there was literally a dozen different things that have gone wrong in the WHO over the last three months. Uh, you know, what like is, major what things. One of the things, I mean, the, the, the things themselves are the bad things, but one other bad thing about all of the shit that's going on which is associated with people like the, at the shall we say the upper end of the management of the who is there are many many people in the who who are doing a fantastic job and are dedicated serious people but they're getting fucked over. I mean the who hasn't been good since I say the SARS pandemic, which if I remember correctly they did fairly well on. Anyway, anyway, Donald, Donald is Donald not Trump. happy with Donald is not happy. He's not. He has sent a four-page letter to Dr. Tedros, and then he's released it publicly. And the gist of the letter is that America, or the Trump administration, temporarily froze their funding to the WHO. Yeah. Uh, That was meant to last, I think, three months, and it was pending an investigation by the Trump administration into it. They say that has now... uh, That investigation has now finished. The investigation was looking at the links of the WHO to the Chinese Communist Party, the steps they took in the early outbreak of COVID-19, mm-hmm. and if the steps taken by the WHO or steps not taken were damaging to the response. And they have come back, and it's a very interesting letter in that it's very untrumpian. It is four pages of bullet-pointed uh, fuck-ups by the WHO, mm that end with Donald Trump saying that we want a binding commitment from you within 30 days 
that you will engage in uh, systemic reform or we will permanently um, major substantive improvements are within the next 30 days they will make the temporary freeze of funding permanent and they will reconsider their membership in the organization which is to say you, you know, say you'll improve in 30 days or we'll pull out we are your largest donor and you can deal with the fallout of that right it is i mean the letter there's only one mention of anything trump did at all in the letter at, mixed in with the other points and everything else is just like a fairly well laid out, fairly well presented. These are the ways you have you screwed this, and it is it's pretty comprehensive. It goes back from the initial reports, covers the uh, the way the WHO believed anything the Chinese told them, um, and it's quite well dated. I yeah I I thought he makes a. He makes a, a a statement in it saying that there was an article in the Lancet in December, which wasn't correct. And I think it's curious that if you go online and you want you sort of Google this and you want to see what the reaction is, most of most of the reaction that I came across was top of the line, for example, political top medical journal blasts Trump. For factual error, error. Uh, Lancet calls claim in Trump letter factually wrong. Uh, so on. Half, it feels like half of the reporting on the letter is just an attack on Trump, and it as a way of not engaging with the content of the letter, shall we say? Mm. And there is a reluctance, it seems, in certain quarters, to consider engaging in any kind of. Rigorous, because uh, it's this isn't really about actually. This not re- it is. Uh, it's about WHO, but really it's about China and the relationship between WHO and China, and the wider question of how China uses its influence geopolitically, I suppose. And there's a fairly substantial group of people out there who don't want to upset China, which is a reasonable thing not to want to do. Yeah, I think the the issue he mentions the Lancet study is that the study was published in January, but it's um, the date of the first patient identified was December 1st. Yes. Now, obviously, there's a lot of stuff that China denies or says doesn't happen exactly that way. Yes. So it's difficult to tell um, exactly what is correct and what isn't. So, for instance, it mentions, um, it doesn't mention it by name, but it says that reportedly Xi Jinping pressured a Dr. Tedros personally to hold back information about the coronavirus. That relates to a report um, from Der Spiegel that the German intelligence, the Federal Intelligence Services, told Der Spiegel that. doesn't mention it in it, uh, where it came from. So yes. stuff like that, German intelligence believes it happened, whether or not it actually happened in that date is, uh, I mean, they could be incorrect. So there's a stuff in it there that may or may not be right. But in general, what I haven't seen as a response to this letter is just a point-by-point refutation of it. One of the central issues here, uh, and has been for a while, is the fact that, and a point he makes, is by no later than December 30th, the WH office in Beijing knew there was a major public health concern in Wuhan. Between December 26th and 30th, the Chinese media highlighted the evidence of a new virus from Wuhan. 
based on patient data sent to multiple Chinese genomics companies. Now, they also, he also criticizes them that uh, in January they, des- they destroyed the samples and the isolates so that they they weren't made available. They, they couldn't be made available for study outside of China. Dr. Zhang Zhang, a doctor from Hubei province of integrated Chinese and Western medicine, had told Chinese health authorities that a new coronavirus was causing a novel disease which at the time was afflicting 180 patients. The next day, Chinese authorities had communicated information to the World Health Organization that human to human, about human to human transmission of a new virus. The next day, but the WHO chose not to share any of this information with the rest of the world. And he says, probably for political reasons. No, that's... He, all he can say is probably he can't prove that, but there's nobody, as you say, Gary, nobody's coming out with a yes anyway, with a point by point by point. And I think the there's probably a couple of points that they can take him up on, and that they can like the Lancet study. They can say, well, that wasn't released. I've heard some people. It also brings up Taiwan that Taiwan went to the um, World Health Organization and sent a letter indicating there was human to human transmission. And the WHO is saying, well, the letter we got um, from a non-member state, because, again, they will not acknowledge that Taiwan exists. Yeah. That was, I think that was the part I enjoyed most when the WHO admitted to The Economist that ignored Taiwan's letters because they thought it would annoy China, which is like a high school girl who doesn't want to upset or crush, except it's a global pandemic. But the the Taiwan Center for Disease Control, they said that... um, that they said that they didn't say there was human to human transmission. They said that there were rumors of an atypical pneumonia, which uh, inside China is generally used to refer to a disease transmitted between humans and caused by coronavirus. So the who, when they say, well, the email never said there was human to human transmission. Technically, no, but I mean, the line a disease, uh, an atypical pneumonia relating to a disease transmitted between humans caused by coronavirus is pretty clearly talking about human-to-human transmission. But it's yet, in the a disease transmitted between humans part. Between humans. Yeah. But the WHO is literally saying that, well, the email didn't didn't say human-to-human transmission. <laughs> what, did, what did they think was going on? No, well, it's, uh, the important thing, Michael, is it didn't mention those exact words. Right, the only those words are 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 required are necessary. For, uh, that's yeah okay. And Taiwan, for their part, said, "Well, no, we didn't say human to human transmission directly. We said transmitted between humans, and that there were rumors because we we hadn't seen the disease in Taiwan, so we couldn't say with any certainty what was happening. We just said we think this is happening there. Um, but it is. We I will link the the letter." in full um in the podcast as well it's it's worth reading as i said i haven't gone through every claim on it but the ones i've checked and the ones i know about seem to hold up now as i said this you can say well it didn't quite happen like that or the who would prefer it was talked about like that but it's not nonsense it's not nonsense and the thing what it is there may be individual details which are capable of a a different interpretation. There may be elements of certain details which are not precisely as described. 
But the shall we say the totality of the story, just the the sheer weight of the uh, of the facts involved, create a story, create a, a narrative which is very hard to shift. I think that is the that is the damaging thing to the WHO. As I said, when I was writing the story and I had to start removing stuff about scandals the WHO has had over this, there have been so many things that have happened to them. Like, so many weird little things, like the cutting an interview because Taiwan is mentioned, uh, calling a petition, calling upon you to resign a racist campaign against you. There's just been a lot that has happened that has damaged Tedros and the WHO. And I think the narrative now is is fairly in place that it's not fit for purpose as it is. No, I I would make the observation just in passing that while the the observations made in the letter are largely accurate and that it that WHO I would say inevitably because it's a, a it's a large outgrowth of the United Nations is not fit for purpose because I believe fundamentally the United Nations is corrupt and pretty well irredeemable in its present form. It is the nature of the beast that it will do that to anything around it. <laughs> but getting away from tinfoil hats and remnants, I, I can't help but wonder if, as we are here in the end of May, with June, July, August, September, October, five months left before November, that this is as much about American politics as it is about Donald Trump's deep concern for the effective management of the WHO. Oh, it's I mean it's a fantastically useful useful narrative politically for everyone but the Chinese. Well, yeah, except well, of course you know, it 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 shouldn't be though, and uh, I, we won't get into this because it's not to the point, and we could spend forever on it. Trump has been doing this China thing for quite some time now. And it's all it fits very nicely into a, a wider China bashing, China trade deal, teaching China lesson, standing up to China man kind of thing that Trump has made part of his storyline. <clears throat> but you know, it would be so much more difficult for him to get any kind of political currency out of this if the Democrats weren't so fucking predictable in their response. It's like they are Pavlovian dogs. Instead of whoever, Biden, whoever, rowing in and saying, absolutely, we agree. Now, we don't agree with the president on this or that, but it's time for American dollars to be spent in a way which is transparent and reasonable. America is the number one donor to the WHO. So as the number one donor, it has, I think, the right to ask for fairly decent levels of governance and practice. And if the Democrats would just row in with that, it would take so much out. But instead, what do they do? They criticise him for saying, no, you can't say this. It's racism. Racism. He's also been deeply helped by um, the Chinese. And I mean, if you haven't seen it, I recommend you check out the uh, the ad the Chinese embassy put in the Irish Independent recently. I don't know if you saw that, Michael. Did I, I did. Well, and, you know, let's face it, in a, in a, at a time, Gary, when not many people are advertising... I mean, yeah, you know, it's it's money. I'll I'll say that. I understand why the independent took that money, but um, I don't know if I would run quite that advertisement. I'll see if I can find a, an image of it and link it down into the the podcast. I mean, he's also being very much helped here by how China is reacting. 
like Australia comes out calling for an investigation into the early stages of the outbreak and they start a trade war explicitly to stop the investigation. Absolute disaster, I mean, PR-wise. I mean, it wasn't just that they were stopping. They they came out and they said, we are very big and very powerful and you are as small and nothing and we will destroy you. I mean, the they Global really... Times, which is, it's, it's owned by the People's Daily, which is owned by the Chinese Communist Party. It's, it's the mouthpiece of the Chinese government to say things that are a little bit more aggressive than it would say yeah. itself, but give you a fairly solid idea of what the, chi- what the Chinese government is thinking. They openly said that because of this push for investigation, Australia should accept economic retribution. Yeah. And you don't, you don't, you don't say that. <laughs> However true it is, you don't just come out and say, oh, no, absolutely, this is just to stop the investigation. And they came out, I think, today, actually, and said that Australia is a dog of the U.S. And dog? They, they, <laughs> That's good old-fashioned rhetoric, this is, isn't this it? This is a fact of you. I mean, this is a country like who is so unhappy about the idea of an investigation into the early stages of the COVID-19 outbreak and a reform of the WHO like it's not a it doesn't seem strictly targeted at the Chinese it just seems like Australia wants a review of this Mm. and you respond by threatening to cripple their economy China has just put 80% barley tariffs on um, Australian barley I mean they've banned a couple of slaughterhouses and they are now apparently there are reports and Australia has responded saying that they 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 aren't sure if they're true that the Chinese uh, governments are has put together what they're terming a hit list of exports, basically things they can just hit one after the other, punish Australia for daring to go against China. And the problem I think they have there is I think that's just pissing off the Australians. Yeah, now you can piss the Australians off all they like, in the sense unless there is some kind of more concerted response from a shall we say a coalition of the of the West to this kind of intimidation. Well then they'll do it to Australia. They won't suffer any consequences and they'll do it to whoever one by one by one. I, I think they may cause that though. I mean we've seen other people kind of row in a bit behind Australia and as China continues putting pressure on, that may happen. Oh yeah, because you know they are massive and they're very big and very powerful, but they are not as big and as quite as big and quite as powerful as maybe they think. Not yet. I Also, I think you're now dealing with a situation where six months ago, people who would have been absolutely against any move to antagonise China, a lot of the people I know who were like that are now significantly more open to it happening because of the behaviour of China. Not just the COVID-19 thing, but partially linked to their actions allowing it to spread more easily, but also just due to how they're acting internationally generally now. They're they're not they're not making friends. <clears throat> Sorry, before we go, there just wanted to mention one little story. I don't know if you caught uh, David Quinn was on with uh, uh, Ivan Yates last night, Gary, talking about the fact that we now have reached a point in the lockdown where. The lockdown has been so, so successful in altering people's behaviour that we now have, we're producing bad behaviours. So people who should be going for cancer treatment and should be going for checkups and should be going for testing are not. So that the, 
the cancer scientists in the in the UK were saying he expects that we could be looking at over thirty thousand excess deaths in cancers, which were potentially avoidable. In the Irish context, that could be like up one thousand eight hundred people dying of cancer on avoidably. In uh, uh, here, uh, David was talking to a, a stroke specialist. He said that he uses this drug, which if administered within four hours, is very very effective and leaves the person almost as if they'd never had a stroke. He said the number of people coming into him that use a stroke has just collapsed. He said these it's not that people have stopped having strokes, but people are incredibly reluctant to go into A&E or to go into hospitals because of this. And this is a, I think that it's a broader point, which is that there are, you come to a point with a, with a, with a, with a, a, a close down of activities where you start to have to balance it in a kind of a, a brutal way, almost, you know, what you benefit you're getting from this and what costs you're getting. And then there's the wider issue of the economics. And it's not a question of, oh, you care more about money than you care about lives. Because the fact is that you make people poorer, you make their lives poorer, but also you have a real effect on mortality and life expectancy. So it's not a sim- it's not as simple as, say, you can't put a price in a life. And there's just one... There was a story, Gary, I wanted to draw your attention to. Do you remember at the beginning of this, uh, before the shutdown... Some of the islands off the west coast, the Aran Islands, I think, and certainly Aran Moor, which is that island that is constantly on your television advertising for somebody's Wi-Fi broadband. They want to make it the most connected island in the world. Do you know the place? You're aware? Very. Yeah, kind of. Anyway, they shut down and nobody came in. And Aran Moor is corona-free. Oh, and has Corona Free at the beginning, they basically shut down on the 13th of March. It's now March, April, we're now into May. How would you imagine the, the difference between life in lockdown Greystones is as opposed to life on COVID free Aaron Moore? I don't know. Well, I thought to myself, well, you know, you're Corona Free. You're not letting any new people on the island. Food comes in, deliveries come in, they're dropped, that's it. I thought, well, you wouldn't God, wouldn't it have been lovely to happen to be there when the lockdown came in? You know, the, the restaurants there, the hotels are there, the pubs, shops. No, it's exactly the same, apparently, as being on the mainland, except you're on an island. Hmm. Uh, with the <laughs> with the discomfort, the potential discomfort. Of being in a place where if the weather gets raw, gets bad and the wind goes the wrong way, you'd, the food doesn't arrive. There's no corona on this island. There's no COVID. I mean, it's gone way, way past the point at which any can, infection could have progressed. Seventy percent. This in a report which uh, uh, dates the seventh of May. So, my point being, it's well past it. There's an, in the I think it's the, it's the Irish News. And the journalist talks to Jerry Early, who is the owner of Early's Bar and a hostel. And Jerry makes the point that 70% of, or a large percentage rather, of the people living on the island, Gary, are over 70. My own, he goes on to say, and this sentence made me stop, genuinely stop in my seat and look, read it again. My own parents are cocooning. Why? Really? 
They're cocooning in their house on the island of Aaron Moore, where there is no corona. Why? Why would you? Everybody is isolating. There's a great sense of community and solidarity in Aaron Moore at the moment. One more so from ever. The adage is so true. We're coming together by staying apart. The people are doing are adhering to the guidelines of social distancing and self-isolation. Good. Why, Carrie? Why is that good? I just said this here. We have some agencies and committees which have done how to their own. We have all pulled together from the outset to keep this virus from our island. I, I don't Cocooning know. will not stop the virus. The virus is either there. It's not. My point is, I, I think we have now reached a point with this thing where we have to start, the people in charge of our lives, Gary, have to start changing the storyline. They have to start changing the tone. They have to start, because if this is how people are behaving, and we... And we know at this stage, we have reason to believe that people's behaviour fundamentally changed before the government introduced its government, not just here, but all over the place. People's behaviour changed rapidly and significantly before the government introduced uh, mandatory changes. And even in Sweden, where we think, where we're we're told various stories about the levels of lockdown or, or the absence of it. Sweden looks like it's going to it's heading for just about the same economic hit and the same decline in economic activity of countries in complete lockdown because people's behavior has changed in response to the virus and to the fear. Now, if we want to actually have a process by which we reopen the economy, unless people's attitude to the virus and to the possibility of living with it and being living with it, working with it, and doing so in a way which is safe, reasonably safe, then they can lift everything. It won't make any difference. People will just stay inside their houses. There'll be a small proportion of them will just go mad and get drunk in small groups, huddled together in pubs like a rat pack. But the rest of us will be sitting inside their house. No, 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 it's it's too dangerous. If people are cocooning, on Aaron Moore, my suspicion is they're going to stay cocooning in city centre in Dublin and in Cork and in Limerick for a hell of a lot longer than the government would would want them. They have to start changing the story. They have to stop. Obviously, people are still very, very frightened of it. And maybe that was a good thing. But I don't think it's effective anymore. I don't think it's it is pay. It is doing what people, what the government need the people to be doing anymore. They have to start changing the story. There was there was one thing I wanted to mention to you before we leave. Yeah, and it's a it's just a it's just a, an article I saw, which you may not have seen. It's by Niall Collins. Niall, oh right, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, the headline is: Born leader Martin has proved he can perform in adversity. In adversity, really, Neil Martin will keep his head when he gets his turn as Thishuk. Writes Niall Collins. Jesus, I never knew Niall did comedy. Would you say he did that because he wanted to do that? Or literal gun to the head? I'd say that Niall is exploring a career maybe in script-based comedy. Maybe he has an idea for a sitcom. I mean, it comes across a little bit desperate. Not from Niall, I assume he was told to do this. But if you are if you are the leader of a political party and uh, you have to get one of your own TDs 
to write a story saying that you're a born leader. It's kind of pathetic. It sounds, do you know what? It's, it sounds, doesn't it, a little bit like a rather pathetic, tawdry version in our own very small way of the kinds of stories that used to get written about the the great leader in communist dictatorships. I mean, it's sort of like, well, we couldn't get anyone who's an actual journalist or an opinion writer or a living person who's a member of the public to write it. So just get one of the people who pretty much work for you to do it. Yeah, and would, uh, well, no, in fairness, Niall Collins would like not to work for him as well. I think Niall Collins would like his job. I don't, it, to me, it sounds like one of those articles you used to see back in the, the 20s in the La Stampe or something saying about Mussolini is a man of destiny. Always striving and working for the good of Italy and for the, the for the people, writes a close confidant of his from the party. It's it. I think it's kind of sad and desperate. It, yeah, it is. It's like it's. I don't get the point of it because I'm sure someone went. Oh, we need to get someone out there saying it. But to have your own TD write it. I, I also, in the middle of, by the way. I, I think one of the great moments, uh, pleasurable moments for me for the last while was, do you remember we were talking about around four weeks ago, we were talking about the various bits and pieces of the the agreement that Fine Gael and Fine Gael had come together. And I was, I was saying to you, I couldn't get my head around why Fine Gael was agreeing to this or that or the other. And I said to you, Gary, it's almost like Fine Gael are engaged in a negotiation, which they know because they know something nobody else knows is never, ever going to come to fruition. That all of this is just, they're, they're just saying, yeah, 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 to keep the thing going on. But actually, they know. This house will never be built. This, you know, this this tide will never come back in. And then we have the wonderful scene, was it two or three days ago, where these it almost hurt tones of the feet of fallers. I think it was Barry Cowan, one of them, saying, Finnegan are secretly planning a, a, a general election. Could you, the horror of it, Finnegan, the deceitful blue shirts, are secretly planning a general election while talking to us and making poor me all think that he would actually be Taoiseach. I particularly liked the um, the response of Finnegan, which was just, but lads, we've we've agreed in the thing we signed that there would be referendums if the government was formed. Yeah. And therefore we have to have people working on how people would vote in this situation. It's not for an election. No. It's for the thing we agreed no. would happen. Remember, you were there in the room. He said we have to have a referendum. It's so. getting like it's it's moved from bad to pitiful, and now it's kind of embarrassing. There is a little bit of just Martin is developing a little bit of the Joe Biden about him, where you sort of <laughs> wish that someone would just take him by the hand and go, "It's time for you to go home now." It's just not happening. I'm afraid. We all wanted it. We all hoped it would be hot, but mm, no. We just think this is what's best for you. Yes. But yeah, the point where you're having, like this, this is like the thing I was talking to people about. Martin saying originally there would be no vote in Fianna Fáil on the leadership, and they were saying, you know, it's a strong move from Martin. I was saying, no, it's a weak move. Terrible. If you if you actually are that strong, you put it to the membership because they'll pass it. You only do this when you don't have that. And similarly, having an, in The Independent an article saying, oh, he's a born leader, he can perform in adversity, he'll be an amazing TD, is a sign of strength if it's not one of your own people. 
But to get someone who's not just a Fianna Fáil member, but a fucking TD to write it. Like that sort of indicates no one else was available. Not even for ready money. And it, it is a beautiful day out. It looks a bit blustery. I'm hoping the temperatures are... We're promised up to 22 degrees today, so I'm hoping that I shall get out now and get some vitamin D, which we all need in these days. Lots of vitamin D. And zinc. Zinc is very good too. So that's what I'm going to do. We will be back on Sunday for our... Oh, sorry. Uh, Friday, Friday. 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 Sunday, Sunday, Missanily. You can't have that. We're back on Friday. But until then, stay home, stay safe. Or if you're out and about, don't sneeze on people. It's not friendly. All the best.